prediction is within five years, you will be able to have a little device goes with you into a customer's office and comes out and at the end coaches you and says things like, the customer raised this need three times and you didn't respond. Welcome back to this special episode of Move the Deal podcast. Move the Deal is a podcast by Miller Hyman Group for sales leaders looking for timely insights on how they can win their must-win deals. See the move that moves the deal. And for sales ops, sales enablement, and talent professionals that aspire to provide their sales teams with world-class talent, tools, and technology, you can subscribe to our podcast at movethedeal.com. This is your host, Greg Moore. Today's guest needs no introduction. If you've spent five minutes in professional sales, you know who Neil Rackham is. So I'd like to use my opening comments instead about how I came to know this remarkable man. I just finished reading his book, Spin Selling, when an executive recruiter called me about an opportunity to work with Neil, the man who literally wrote the book on professional selling, and would later become famous globally as the professor of professional selling. Neil's company was still small back then, but had unimaginable potential. I was in, it was a match made in heaven, and I joined Neil's team in 1997 and learned professional selling directly from the source. Neil's vision for what professional selling should be expanded rapidly and globally in the years that followed. And in this special episode of Move the Deal podcast, I had the wonderful opportunity to hear from Neil and hear his reflections on the early days and to learn what he thinks about the state of selling today and what he sees it becoming in the future. Without further ado, I bring you the professor of professional selling, Mr. Neil Rackham. Neil Rackham, such an honor to have you on Move the Deal podcast. Thanks for joining today. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Greg. You and I go back many years. Such a long time ago. In fact, 22 years to be exact. I won't expect you to remember this, but the day I met you, I rolled up for my interview in the beautiful estate there in Northern Virginia, and you came out of this barn that had been rehabbed into this palatial work study area, and you introduced yourself, and then you started talking about something that you were working on and had just come up with the nomenclature, the four value drivers, which our clients will recognize as very central to how sellers create value today. The last time we met, though, was in Singapore, right? In 2011. Yes, 2011, yeah. And we had you, gosh, presenting to sold-out audiences that whole week. It was such a fun week to have you out there. How have you been since then? What's caught your attention these days? Well, I suppose I've defined my time between research, which is my true love, and writing. Uh, yeah, anything to avoid real work, you know? And uh, <laughs> I, I find myself hugely busy because the world's changing so fast that um, you have to run just to keep up with it, you know? Yeah. Well, I have to ask, you were a big walker before. Are you still keeping up with walking or have you now switched to running? <laughs> no, I, I still try and walk five or six miles a day. But uh, walking time gets eaten into by... The exciting world we live in, you know? Yeah. Well, obviously, the creation of spin selling has changed the world. Spin turned selling into a science by providing that empirical research on behaviors that correlate with successful call outcomes. I think the world now knows that. But if you look into your crystal ball, what do you see about the ways science is going to continue to impact the future of selling? I think technology in particular is going to have a huge impact. We've already seen the enormous impact that the internet uh, has made in terms of redefining sales. 
there's a lot further to go. So, for example, as we get into big data and the, the analysis of, of patterns, we'll get a much better understanding of what makes successful selling. Artificial intelligence is doing some very interesting things indeed. For example, I have a research team based in Sheffield, England, that's looking into the analysis of interactive behavior, of which mm. sales would be one category. And um, we're using artificial intelligence to machine code the interactions between people. It means that we're making a lot of strides, but it, we, our prediction is within five years, you will be able to have a little device goes with you into a customer's office and comes out and at the end coaches you and says things like, the customer raised this need three times and you didn't respond. Mm. Or you asked a, a lot more questions, but I noticed you didn't ask questions in this particular area. Yep. So the device will be able to give you artificial intelligence backed coaching. And of course, maybe 20 years from now, the device may actually do the selling, but let's not go there yet. You know, there are some emerging technologies out there today, some companies that I've recently have grown to admire, Chorus.ai, which has that kind of technology that records, logs on as a participant in the call, listens, uses AI and machine learning to understand what's being discussed and, and provides some of that kind of fundamental feedback. I would love to see that grow and scale. In fact, when I hear about something like that, I think about the research that you did so many years ago to understand the spin model. And it was kind of the analog version of observing behaviors. And now we've got some technology to help with that kind of research. Yes, very much. What's happened is technology still isn't quite as good as a human observer, although it's going that way. But what it can do is it can accumulate a lot of data and let us look for patterns. And that was the hard bit in the research we did, teasing out the patterns of what worked. Uh, well, we can do that with current big data analysis methods much better than we've ever been able to do it before. So I look forward to a whole series of breakthroughs coming from this kind of work. Yeah, me too. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Same coin, different side of the coin. People often think about selling as a mixture of art and science. And we've seen over the past couple of decades that pendulum swing very rapidly in the direction of science. Is there anything that you might consider would cause that pendulum to swing back toward the art? Oh, yes. Yes, very much. I think neuroscience starts to put us there. There's very, very good evidence that the brain has two quite separate decision-making systems. The limbic, old, quick response system, which is very emotional, cause us to say, I like it, I don't like it, yes, no. Then there's the analytic, rational system, which came neurologically much later. Now, what I did with spin selling was I looked at that more rational neurological process. You know, I tried to break it down by its logic and by its components. But there is a lot of evidence. Look at the present um, political leaders in many countries. But mm -hmm. they don't work by logic. They don't work by evidence. They don't necessarily work rationally. They're working on this older, sudden decision, emotionally driven process. Now, that stayed out of business largely, but it's a very, very important and very, very powerful process. And as power accumulates to fewer people, it's the equivalent of the rich getting richer, 
in mm-hmm. corporate structures, a lot of those senior people are making decisions not necessarily on the most rational basis. So I see that there will be a lot of attention being given to the emotional side of decision-making in the future. Let me turn the clock back 40 years, if I can, back to 1988, first release of spin selling. So it's been in the market now for, gosh, 41 years. Wow. Amazing, right? It's absolutely amazing. And the impact that it's had globally in so many markets around the world. What are you most pleased with when you think about that past 40 years? I think I'm pleased that it was way ahead of its time. Mm. Uh, You probably don't know. Well, you might know, but a lot of your listeners won't. But I had to go through eight publishers before I found one who would take it. I didn't know that. Yeah, and they only took it because I promised to buy all unsold copies after three months to (laughs) to guarantee they'd make a profit on the whole thing. Now, at the time, it was hugely controversial. It's it's hard as you look back on it now because it just seems so sort of self-evident. At the time, it wasn't. And so when it first went out, my worry was this, this isn't going to gain acceptance. And even if it does, then it's going to be supplanted by people doing more and better research. So the thing I, I'm surprised at, and I'm not entirely pleased by, is how little real research has been done since that original huge spin project. Now, of course, that's expensive research, and people don't want to put the money in uh, for something speculative. But I am surprised it hasn't been overtaken by bigger and better methods, you know? Yeah, that's a good call out. And I, too, am shocked and amazed that there hasn't been an equivalent effort. I think I saw on your website that the magnitude of the investment that it went into that research in today's dollars would be somewhere around 40 million. Do I have that number right? Between 30 and 40, yeah. Which is, of course, a barrier to doing that kind of global research. Yeah. Although, going back to our earlier conversation, we're getting to the point where much of that can be automated. The real cost of that research, more than 90% of it, was the cost of sending human observers into watch sales calls. If, if you could do that automatically, you could start accumulating an equivalent database very cheaply. Yeah, at scale, global yep. scale. Yep. If you knew back then what you know now, what, if anything, might you do differently? Good question. I think I would have stuck out to get the spin book that I wanted to get and to publish the things I was most interested in. I had to spend a lot of time on stuff like closing, you know, where even in those days, most intelligent people knew that these were fairly trivial techniques that weren't worth the energy. But my publisher wouldn't take it without that sort of thing in it. So I felt I wasn't able to look in depth at the model. In subsequent books, I put some of that right to bring the emphasis towards value creation with the customer, for example. Mm -hmm. But at the time, the editors of the book really pushed me to make it more manipulative, make it more, show how you can beat the customer. And I was saying, well, that isn't really what it's about. No, no, but but could you just change this so it was a bit more that way? So that that was something where if I'd known what I now know, I would have dug my heels in and said, Go jump. You know? yeah. 
I, I, I want it the way I want it. That was the way selling was getting done, right? It was. That's right. And that's why your book was so controversial. Yeah, exactly right. Now, even though we're talking a lot about spin selling here, because it's probably the most widely known model from your research, are there any other bodies of research that you are extremely proud of from your lifetime of research? Yeah, I, I think if I had to pick one thing out, it would be the, the work I did on teams. I started that work before I did any of the sales stuff. And I was just having a look at how people in teams interacted and what seemed to help the team and what didn't. I started that work way back by 1970. My gosh, I must be getting really, really old and doddery. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. That work has started to gain a lot of interest. Google became very interested in it as they began to look at Teams. And uh. suddenly, I found that my phone was ringing off the hook. People wanted to know about work I'd done more than 50 years ago. And so the net effect of all this was I became interested in it again. And my old university where I did my own work, Sheffield University, has given me a team of five postdoc researchers to have a look at teamwork. So I've taken my old research from 50 years ago, and I've now got five very smart people who are working on extending it and taking it further and doing all the things with it that I, I abandoned when I turned to the dark side and moved to sales. <laughs> that is fascinating. And I've read uh, quite a bit about the Google Teams research. I didn't realize that it had some connections back into some of the research that you've done. That's that's fascinating. And I have to speculate, there's a body of research that I know really well, and there's a probably a smaller group of folks will know this around what we call the 11 cats, the 11 categories of behavior. Is there any connection back into those fundamental behaviors that is also impacting the team yes. research that you do? Yeah? Very much. What was commonly called the 11 category system, was one of the behavior measurement instruments that we developed first in the teamwork context. Mm. So teamwork threw that out, uh, and that got built into a lot of management training all across the world. In fact, some in some places it's still used. That was, for me personally, some of my favorite research. When it was first presented to me, and the way it was presented, it changed my life. Literally, there mm -hmm. were behavioral analysts in the room, they were observing us. I didn't realize what they were doing. And then we went to the break. We came back into the boathouse, uh, mm -hmm. which is such a beautiful place. And then those analysts fed back to us our behavioral profile without mm -hmm. the names. And they mm -hmm. said, okay, of all the people in the room here, which one of these profiles is you? And you know, I was sure that my behaviors were the more effective ones. So I pointed at this one. Yeah, this is surely me. And then they did the reveal and showed who was who. And I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I was so unaware of my own behaviors. In that moment, I became self-aware around those behaviors in a way that changed my life. It was re such powerful research. I find a lot of people have similar stories because when you're busy working, for example, at a team, you're so focused on the task you're doing that you usually don't have a great awareness of the behavior that you're using to enable the task to be completed. And yeah. uh, when you get an analysis of that behavior, um, most people are very surprised. I I've certainly been surprised. The times it's been done on me, I've come out a little bit with my tail between my legs, you know, and thought, hmm, <laughs> I should know better than that. 
but uh, it's always feedback is always useful. It is. I would like to ask you, I, I've been curious for these past many years, if Neil were to look at the state of selling today, would he be happy? Would he like what he sees? You know, and how would he feel about it? Can you just comment and react to that? Do you like what you see with the state of selling today? I think it's become considerably more sophisticated. It's not been a bad thing that the internet has given power to the customer. I think it's been a very, very useful development that routine transactional sales, which I define as sales where the customer already knows what they want, they're just choosing between the options. Those sales have increasingly moved away from sales into marketing because they're internet driven. The skills you need to bring in transactional business tend to be skills like you know, branding, advertising, great website, stuff like that. And marketing has the skills and historically sales has been responsible for bringing in the business. Well, if you have the accountability without the tools, something's wrong there. And more and more organizations have switched the transactional business to marketing, and that's left sales itself with a more complex, more sophisticated, consultative business where the salesperson of today really has to be a significant consultant who can advise and help and bring expertise to the customer. And I think that's a highly positive change. Are there any areas of concern you would note, you know, maybe words of caution that the industry, we, the sales professionals of the world, could take heed and note? Yes. I think there are deficiencies that haven't been addressed yet. And, and I think there are excesses. To some degree, CRM systems and their successors have really not helped the higher level of selling. You know, the whole idea of process-driven sales, which we see happening just about everywhere, sort of suggests that if you follow the process, you will be more successful. Well, for those people who are having difficulty, a track to run on is enormously valuable. It means that people who would otherwise fail can do the job moderately successfully. But the fact is, at higher level selling, this is where you need the art as well as the science. It's mm -hmm. a very different thing. And the more you try to proceduralize it, the more you try to tie it down into a classic funnel, for example, the more you restrict your very best performers. So one of the things I don't like is I'm seeing a rather heavy-handed approach in many companies today when I think it would be much, much more effective to give great latitude to the top 10% of performers in, in any sales force. One other thing, though, that does worry me, and, and this sort of worries me quite a lot, when I look at what's going on in a lot of sales management today, because they're so driven by short-term goals, they're losing sight that the central thing in sales is the relationship with the customer and the need to create customer value. And I, I'm seeing short-term goals often driving that away. And, and I find that really sad because I would have hoped as selling matured, it, it would get out of some of these very simplistic, rigid 
procedural models. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're pinning that to, that's a responsibility of sales management to do a better job of helping that not being a short-term focus. That's a sales manager responsibility. Yeah. And I think we've not put enough focus on sales management. You know, I've in my life had to turn around a couple of dozen sales forces. And I've been able to do it if I've had reasonable sales managers, even if salespeople themselves weren't very good. But I've never been able to turn around a sales force, even with really good salespeople, if sales management was mediocre. So true. So true. Everything depends on sales managers. That's where it is. And we haven't given enough attention to the first-line sales manager and I think more focus needs to be there. Boy, that sounds like a topic for its own podcast sometime in the future, if I'm <laughs> fortunate enough to have you back on the show. Neil, there's another thing I'm just curious about. I, I was thinking the other day, I was traveling to New York, and I was reminded of a trip we took to New York together for some business. And I was asking you about some of your ideas about, I think you were working on your next business book. And you had shared with me that while you were pleased with the success of your business books, your ultimate legacy was to write children's poetry. I was so fascinated by that, and I was curious to know if you've made any progress on that in the years since we have not been together. Well, yes, I have. I'm not confining my thinking to poetry. Poetry is one particular way of communicating with young people. I find that other modes like the novels for young people uh, I've also got a lot of promise. I'm in the final stages of working on a novel about the conflict between arts and sciences, written for oh, nice. 13 to 15-year-olds. I'm having a huge amount of fun with that. And, of course, another area that I've been very, very interested in is legends. Legends, legends. are stories that get told to children by generation after generation after generation of parents. And, you know, Legends are very Darwinian. They, it's survival of the fittest. If I tell you a story and it's not interesting, you don't pass it on to anyone else. Mm-hmm. If a story gets passed on through seven, eight, nine generations of people, you know it must be because it's really getting at something deep in the human psyche. And so I'm just publishing next month a book called A Telling of Stones, which is a compilation of Scottish legends. And I've had a huge amount of fun researching that and writing that. How can we get this book? When, when will it be available? It'll be published by ACAR, that's A-C-A-I-R, a Scottish publisher. It'll be published on November the 30th. So it is called A Telling of Stones. Very nice. New material from Neil Rackham. This is, this is fantastic. What a treat. Neil, I, look, I could go on for a long, long time. You've been very generous with your time here today. I like to close this podcast with a concluding section called What's Your Move? The, mm-hmm. the podcast is called Move the Deal. It's aimed at sales leaders and sales professionals and everybody who's involved in that sales function to help them see the move that moves the deal, as we like to say. So I'd just like to ask you, if you net out all that you've observed and written on the topic of world-class selling, what do you think it means today to be world-class and how do you get there? Oh, wow. Um, I, I think the first thing that you have to recognize is that selling today, certainly at a world-class level, 
is not at all about persuasion. It's about two things more than anything else, creativity and curiosity. So if you look at the best salespeople I've ever worked with across the world, they have these two characteristics. They're highly creative. That is, they'll always see a way forward in a complex sale. They say, ah, yes, but we're not getting anywhere with this, but suppose we tried that. Suppose we did this. They come up with possibilities, both in terms of how to navigate the sale, but also to help customers solve their problems. So creativity is coming to the front. And to me, the difference between world-class salespeople and those who just made it into the second tier are that the world-class salespeople really are highly creative. And, and the other thing there is being creative isn't very much help if you're not curious. Mm -hmm. Almost every world-class salespeople I've ever known is highly interested in the world they're in. They love ideas. They love to just ask about stuff, to find out how it works. You know, at the time when I first employed you at Hathwaite, I, I used to have a little test where I, if salespeople were coming to uh, apply to, to work with us, I used to send them, before they saw me, round to talk to every department. I, I'd say, I'd like to spend two or three hours just wandering around, talking to people. The ones that really turned out to be exceptionally good, the ones who, when they came back, had a lot of questions. Mm. They'd... And they didn't just ask me, they asked questions to whoever they met. They were curious. So I would say the two great skills to develop are curiosity and creativity. Now, that's for salespeople. Let me just say one thing to sales managers, one very simple thing. And that's this. If you're a sales manager, you need to make sure that your people are creating customer value in every call they make. And there's a very simple coaching tool that I'll give you right now. And that is this. If you've got one of your people going out on an important call next Tuesday, give them a call a couple of days before and ask them one simple question. And the question is this. Why would the customer write you a check for the call that you're about to make? And if they haven't got a good answer, then you need to give them some coaching. Because the job of any salesperson is to have such an impact on the customer that they earn the right to the relationship by the value they create. And the measure of whether they're creating value is, would they write a check? After all, that's the customer's measure. That was such a good call, I would actually have paid you to have made it. And so use that as a coaching tool and you won't go far wrong. And that would be my last word on the subject, Greg. Neil, absolutely brilliant. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you personally, as well as obviously publicly, because it's on this podcast. You have had such a profound impact on my life. I've had a wonderful career because you gave me a chance all those many years ago to join your sales force. And my family has benefited as well tremendously because of the success of living and walking the talk of the research and the, the behaviors that your research led to. So I just want to give you a heartfelt thanks. So great to catch up with you. And thank you, Greg. Thank you. Take care. Wow, what a treat it was for me to have Neil on the podcast today. 22 years since I met Neil, and he continues to inspire me. 
And I know he's inspired so many of you because I've heard the stories over the years about how Neil himself or his bodies of research, his books, his models and methodologies have kicked your careers into high gear and led to a level of success that would not otherwise have been achievable. So thanks, Neil, and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Move the Deal. Move the Deal podcast is hosted by myself, Greg Moore, produced by Miller Hyman Group, and edited by Dan Jakes. You can subscribe to our podcast at movethedeal.com. Join us next episode for more timely insights on how you can see the move that moves the deal. Thank you.